Hi, creative friends. The episode you're about to listen to is recorded July 4th of this year, and ultimately I tabled it. I wanted to tell you a little bit about that decision and also about my decision to publish it now before the end of the year. I love the episode you're about to listen to. It's one of the more fun and meaningful episodes I've recorded on this podcast in general. So I hope that you find aspects of it meaningful or all of it meaningful. However, I wanted to share with you one of the reasons I tabled it for as long as I did. Something that you can keep in mind as you're listening to it and also potentially keep in mind as you listen to anything from this podcast or from anyone else for that matter. A few months before I recorded this episode, I came across a blog post from the Oh my goodness, blanking out, not going to re-record it. (laughs) The Revolution from Home. It's an excellent blog for mothers about navigating a culture that um, doesn't support families or mothers very well at all. And, excuse me, she did a lovely post about the topic that I want to share with you. And it was really meaningful to me. It was about the ways that a lot of self-help folks in all different kinds of arenas, right? From Tony Robbins to metaphysical to yoga to psychotherapy and anything. Um, And especially parenting, um, which is what Beth Berry from Revolution from Home is specifically writing about, is that there's quite a few people who have a lot of information that they want to disseminate to parents, but this applies to anyone in the self-help realm at all. And one of the things that the post talked about is the ways that most people who are attempting to serve others through their research, through their creative pursuits, through their information, whatever, for better or for worse, disconnect themselves from the circumstances of the people they're trying to help. And there's probably a lot of intentional reasons for this, one of them creating some objective distance. The problem, however, with doing that is that if, for example, you're going to share research on gentle parenting and then subsequently techniques on how to be a better gentle parent, but you don't acknowledge and talk about and empathize with the circumstances of the mothers and fathers that you're talking to, you're unintentionally gaslighting the shit out of them. (laughs) And so the, like, if that doesn't make sense, like an example is if you're, if you're giving some tools and techniques for a mother to talk more softly to her child, who's having a tantrum, those tools and techniques may be very research-based and very helpful and meaningful And that mother is probably very sleep deprived. That mother is probably dealing with intense amounts of hormone imbalances that make calm speaking almost physiologically impossible. That mother is possibly, if not more than likely, working multiple jobs just to pay bills. There's a lot of circumstances that parents, especially mothers, fall into And if you don't talk about those circumstances, you are in essence telling that mother, you should be able to do these things. I am giving them to you. Now go do them. And it makes a lot of sense. I'm sure some of you listening to this can relate. You read something from someone that you respect or you listen to a podcast from someone that you admire and they're sharing this information 
and you're consuming it and digesting it through your system and you're thinking to yourself, I should be able to do this. They are giving it to me, I am taking it and now I should be able to do something with it. And when you can't do something with it because of tremendously challenging life circumstances that this person has not talked about at all, it can leave you feeling like you're the problem. And and sure, you know, I'm not saying that individuals don't have responsibility for their lives. They they do. And as a parent, my responsibility to be the type of parent that I want to be does fall on my shoulders. And we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a society and in a culture and in communities that affect our lives tremendously. And right now we're living in a space and time on the planet that is very, very toxic and very challenging for everybody. And that includes you. And when I was reading this blog post, it just opened me up in the best way because it made me immediately forgive myself for all of the times that I truly berated myself for having information that could make my life better, my son's life better, my husband's life better, and was unable to actualize it. And after I you know, thought about it a little more, I thought, okay, when I record podcast episodes, to the extent that I'm able, I'm going to I acknowledge the listeners or you. <laughs> and I don't, I've only been trying to do this for a few months. I'm not great at it. I'm better at it. Um, but it's important to me. It's very important to me that people who are hearing words from me also feel like their experiences are being acknowledged, even just a little bit, because I understand that a lot of the things that have helped me that work for me, a lot of the ideas that I have about art making and being an artist and changing our perspective around artistry, all of those things are attached to a tremendous amount of privilege and certain circumstances in my life that other people don't necessarily share, et cetera, et cetera. And when I recorded the episode you're about to listen to, after I, I re-reflected on it, I was you know, pretty concerned that the episode itself was pretty disconnected from a lot of people's experiences. And I was concerned that people would listen to it and feel like they had really helpful information and then blame themselves because they couldn't actualize it or, or even worse, blame me for not you know, realizing that. And suggesting that they should be able to adopt some of the ideas that I have in this episode without considering the life that they're living. It's also possible that nobody listening to this episode will think that. But I suspect some will. And I wanted to give the disclaimer ahead of time that that's my learning curve. And it should be, in my opinion, anybody who's working in media of this type, it it should be their work too to continually flex those muscles and become better at speaking to the experiences of as many people as they can. And it's something I'm committed to doing in 2024. And I love y'all. Thank you for spending precious minutes of your day listening to this podcast, spending it with me. I really cherish you and appreciate you. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Peace. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients and in artwork in life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. 
I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled The Art Freedom Paradox. <sighs> Happy 4th of July. I This will be dropping well after 4th of July, <laughs> but I'm sitting here recording on Independence Day in the United States. It is our freedom holiday. This holiday comes with lots of feelings for lots of different people in lots of different ways. And I I guess I want to acknowledge that before we start talking about today's episode, because I think for some people, this is an incredibly positive holiday. For some people, this holiday is mixed at best, right? This idea of independence has been attached to freedom for a long time in many countries, but especially this one. And I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it? Historically, and all of us are connected to ancestors that have been decidedly unfree, right? Like, I have a tremendous amount of artistic and lived freedom and buried in my genetic makeup is the remnants of being incredibly trapped right or or being the trapper right all of us within our dna have remnants of being a victim and being a perpetrator because historically that has been you know really prominent parts of global history all all over the human species has really struggled to find ways to live free and so being free is i think one of the most artistic undertakings that humans have taken on in all of history and space and time. And so I want to talk today about freedom and I want to talk about it in the framework of making art, but also in the framework of living artistically. And I want to talk about a paradox that I think exists within some of the ideas we have about making things, about being artistic and about being free and maybe reframe some of those stories in a way that can be helpful. I suspect that everyone listening to this, even those of us that have tremendous privilege and have lots of relative freedom, can immediately think of a way that they feel decidedly unfree. Decidedly and unfree go together so well, don't they? (laughs) I, and And there are also those of us who have so little freedom that perhaps the first thing they think of is, where do I start? (laughs) Where do I even start to talk about this topic? So I want to dive in and we're going to go on a little walk and see where we get to. (laughs) I... I years ago, so and and actually before I even start 
telling this story, I think it's probably important to start off by saying this. I I mentioned in the intro that I'm an illustrator. I work primarily with digital drawing and traditional drawing materials. Those are my media. I don't have a robust background in painting. I did take quite a few painting courses in my undergrad, and then I kind of just stopped. And even then, during that time, my painting experience was limited to acrylic and oil, which are you know, opaque paints. And when I say opaque, many of my artist friends listening immediately know what I'm talking about. Um, if there's any of you that are a little less familiar with some of those color terms, opaque is, you know, the, the term to describe not see-through. <laughs> and I, and so I, I really made it well into adulthood before I ever even touched watercolor. Watercolor is interestingly not part of most art major requirements. Like I, I, sus- I suspect there's a lot of art majors that might be listening to this right now saying, no, I, I've taken watercolor, but I, I don't know many school programs that require it. Like they do oil. Oil is like the, I don't know. Oil is sort of the epitome of painting, <laughs> right? Like if you decide to have an art major, a classic, you know, fine art major, oil painting is going to happen like significant amounts of oil painting and before that acrylic often acrylic is sort of an introduction to painting right watercolor is this weird not talked about painting medium and yet it's what's so interesting about that to me is that and I think most people that have experience with all different types of paint, including watercolor, would agree with me here, is probably one of the hardest media to master. Or honestly, even to introduce yourself to. It's a tremendously intimidating media. And I hadn't honestly, by the time I got to my mid-20s, I hadn't really thought about watercolor. Like it <laughs> and I ended up taking this like weekend workshop with a friend and I was like, this will be cool. Like, I don't, you know, the last time I did watercolor was in elementary school, right? But it was painting (laughs) different colors on a piece of paper to make a sunset. You know, it was nothing truly technique driven. And I, I think like a lot of things, and I talked about this in the last episode, when it comes to introducing ourselves to art making for the first time in a while or for the first time ever there are some presuppositions we have about it being very glorious and simple and natural and immediately in this workshop I was kind of like punched in the face by how tricky watercolor is and so I'm going to do my best to describe my experience but I have to tell you like out the gate if any of you listening to this that may have a more extensive background in watercolor, you may disagree with my experience and my perspective wholeheartedly <laughs> because this this story is based on one isolated experience with watercolor of which I never did again. <laughs> um, 
on a side note, before I tell you this story, I think it's important to say for all of us listening that it's a, it's this weird idea that I think a lot of artists and a lot of non-artists, and when I say non-artists, I'm talking about people that don't work professionally in art because all of us are artists in the other way. <laughs> That's the theme of this podcast, isn't it? All of us are artists in a deeply experiential lived way. And all of us have modalities that are incredibly artistic. And when it comes to professional art making, not everyone is an artist. So it's important to sort of delineate those two things, I think. So when I say not an artist in this context, I mean not working to pay their bills with artistry. <laughs> so non-artists, I think, have this idea, and I've run into this illustrating. People will come to me and they'll be like, I'm starting a business. I love your work. Can you design me a logo? And I... I have since learned how to deliver a much more elegant no. <laughs> but in the beginning, I think I would take people aback when I would say, no, I'm terrible at logos. And I, would, I was surprised to discover that a significant number of people would bristle a little bit and, and not believe me, <laughs> right? Because there's this idea that if I'm good at drawing in an illustrative capacity, I must be good at everything. And that's not true. And it shouldn't be the goal either. I remember when I worked at Trader Joe's, one of the sign painters that worked in the back would exclusively do signs in capital letters. And I talked to him about it one time and he said, I'm terrible at lowercase letters and I don't have to do them. So I'm not. And his signs were gorgeous. And it became a part of his calling card style to be capital letters only. And so as creative people, as artists, giving ourselves permission to specialize and to let go of things that aren't us is, I think, important. And, and of course, being open to the, revisiting that, revising that later, I may one day wake up in my 60s and decide watercolor must be a part of my life. But for now, it is not. <laughs> So I'm taking this workshop and the thing about watercolor that was so different for me based on any drawing, painting, even sculpture classes that I had taken is that editing a watercolor painting is pretty much not a thing <laughs> in, the, in the way that other media functions. So even if you haven't painted with watercolor, I think this will make sense to you. Watercolor is not opaque. Watercolor is translucent. It means that it is see-through. And it's, so it's, it's a highly layerable media. Um, medium, sorry, in, in, single, <laughs> in single terminology here. And that means that watercolor is luscious and powerful and almost alive in a way that no other media in my opinion is but because it's translucent it means that you can't cover up mistakes <laughs> because the mistake will always show through unless you just cover the mistake with this matte black watercolor right in acry acrylic is in some ways an introductory painting 
medium and I mentioned earlier in this episode because it dries incredibly fast and so if you're painting and you make a faux pas that you don't like you just let it dry like it takes 30 to 60 seconds if it's a thin layer you know five to ten minutes if it's thick (laughs) and then you paint over it and even if you paint over it with a white or a yellow most of the time it will cover up your error with enough work oil is a little trickier right because oil has a much more extended drying time so you have to learn different ways around it but you can also manage editing an oil painting in a much more straightforward way with watercolor that option is almost non-existent and so there's this level of planning that has to happen that is very uncomfortable even for seasoned artists so you learn to work in this incredibly restrained way because once something's dark that's it it's there It's there, like, there's no painting lighter watercolors over it. Like, right, like that light shades of watercolor are too gentle to temper down something really dark. And so you start with these incredibly restrained tones and very slowly and in a very planned way, work your way up to at the end you're laying in the very darkest tones and you're doing it in a very planned way because once they're down they're down (laughs) and for a lot of people even people that have a lot of experience with art myself included this is it's stressful because there is for better or for worse baked into all of us this desire to create the best possible outcome that we can create whether it's art or life or whatever (laughs) and when you're working with a medium that is for all intents and purposes pretty unforgiving there's a lot of energy like I just remember like there was so much energy inside of me trying to anticipate and and then manage (laughs) the outcomes of this very rogue medium to me watercolor felt rogue (laughs) and I was pretty terrible at it because I I'm used to being able to control drawing and with erasing (laughs) I'm a huge advocate for erasing I talk about this in in intuitive drawing it's something I use often (laughs) there's not a a thing with that in watercolor it just is not it doesn't exist like I remember the instructor kind of showing us like if we had like very light errors we could take a razor blade and kind of like try to scrape the surface of the watercolor paper but even that was incredibly imperfect right because you're you're creating this texture on the surface of the paper that's now going to react to the new paint differently and so it, it was just like once there was a thing on the painting, it was just there forever. And I didn't like it. I have to I have to be honest, I didn't like it. And I and yet I, I, I 
deeply, and I suspect a lot of us can relate to this, maybe not in the context of painting with watercolor, but with anything in life, I think all of us know that feeling of a thing being so cool (laughs) that we wish for this thing in spite of how difficult it is. And I wanted, I wanted mastery of this material. And I immediately could tell that it was going to take forever, like years (laughs) to get to a place where I felt comfortable working with, with this paint. And fast forward years later, I, you know, I'm a working artist in Austin and I start teaching at Laguna Gloria, the art school at Laguna Gloria. Those of you that live here may be familiar. It's a beautiful school for preschool on up to adult. It's on a nature preserve. It's excellent and it employs working artists that you know that's their thing is working artists teaching our classes in this beautiful natural setting i was thrilled to get an opportunity to work there and i'm gonna continue to work there um hopefully in 2024 so stay tuned on com. you can sign up for the newsletter and get information about classes coming let's move on from the little plug <laughs> and there was an instructor there. She's moved on. She's doing other things, but she was incredibly popular teacher to the point where the art school once I think had like a, they had a faculty meeting where she did a short presentation on how she sold out her classes. Like her classes would go live and they'd be sold out in like 10 minutes. You know, she was, she was incredibly popular, and the thing that was so fascinating about the popularity of her class was that she was a watercolorist, right? This is a very challenging medium, and she was regularly getting brand new artists wanting to learn from her how to do this. And I think the reason why was because she had this really unique approach to teaching watercolor, And I forget the exact title of the class now. It was like 35 or like 25 watercolor techniques or something. It was in some ways a really bland title and also the perfect title because, and I, those of you that have been following my work for some time, you know that I, I illustrate, I have sort of a broad range of illustration outlets and I have a retail space on my site and some stickers that encapsulate philosophical artistic viewpoints that I have. And one of them is energy over image. That's the most popular sticker in my shop. It sells very well. And I think it's because the idea of energy over image really strikes at the zeitgeist right now. I think people all over in all different kinds of areas of life relate to the shift that's happening in humanity right now, that energy is becoming as important as image, if not more right now. So if I'm energy over image, I would say Jan is energy and image. (laughs) Jan is, Jan's like, no, image matters, (laughs) y'all. Like her classes were highly technique driven, highly image driven. But I think baked underneath that philosophy of hers was this idea that when you master the technique of watercolor, the energy comes naturally. It just explodes. And it's true. Like if you look at some of Jan's work, I've talked about her in past podcast episodes, um, and I'm going to link to her website in the show notes if you want to check out her stuff. She's 
been painting her whole life. She's a true master of this medium. When you get really, really good at working within the framework of this medium, it it becomes alive. I mentioned earlier in the episode, it does a really fantastic watercolor painting to me is a li- is a living thing. And I would argue all really masterful artworks are alive. But watercolor, it vibrates, it's luminescent. Because there's all of these layers, you're seeing through layers of work from this artist. And it, it glows in a way that other media don't. It's, it's hard. To, can you tell even, I think I'm doing a decent job of describing this. And also the thing I'm trying to describe is not meant to totally be described by words. It's something you have to experience. And you can kind of experience seeing it through Jan's website, but you have to see her stuff in real life to know what I'm talking about. I've even seen stuff that her students have done and their pieces are alive too. So, so I'm like, I give up, right? I like, let's circle back. So I I give up. I think, okay, well, this is just, this isn't my, my medium, right? But what if we take some of the ideas that we've just talked about in watercolor and the limitations and the frustrations and the expansive possibilities of this medium and we take those ideas and we apply them to life when we're born for better or for worse we get creative tools Uh, you know a a repertoire a box of media that includes some things and doesn't include other things and everybody on the face of the planet has possibilities and limitations within the materials that they're given to create their life. And while it's definitely a true statement that all of us are given significant and profound limitations to deal with, many of us have fewer, (laughs) right? Many of us are handed media that are easier to work with. And when I talk about media in the terms of the lived experience, I'm talking about our life circumstances, right? Like the family we're born into, the the place that we live. Those things are creative tools. Those are absolutely the, the hometown that you grow up in, the community that shapes you. Those things become part of the way that you create for the rest of your life, for better or for worse. And some of us are handed acrylics when we're born and some of us are handed watercolors. <laughs> And it can feel really frustrating. It can feel like we're, we're trapped often. I, you know, I would say I felt trapped that day in that watercolor workshop. And I, I don't want to go into this topic too much because I've talked about it extensively in other episodes and we'll continue to talk about it in future episodes. But just to retouch upon it right now. Taking an art class, even for someone who's been making art their whole life and feels very comfortable doing it, brings up your stuff. And I remember feeling victimized by watercolor. I, was, I felt, <laughs> you know, how interesting, isn't it? I, 
And maybe for some of us listening to this that have a more limited or potentially non-existent experience with painting, they might say, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. And that may be true, but there's some type of creative forum that all of us have done where it brings up your stuff. For my friends um, that lives here in Austin, she's a realtor. She's incredibly, incredibly good at selling houses, y'all. <laughs> and for a long time, she did stand-up and improv. And she talked about the vulnerability of that. And it would bring stuff up, painful stuff. And she would learn to create with that stuff as like a fuel for working this way, right? I don't think she views herself as a classically trained artist, but she 100% has experience working artistically in a way that makes her happy. And all of us have that. And all of us, when we work creatively or artistically in our chosen media, medium, (laughs) I will forever mix up the use of those words. So thank you for your patience. (laughs) We have things come up and I, I was feeling trapped and victimized in this very weird way in a in a way that you wouldn't expect paints to trigger and when we take that idea and we apply it to the lived artwork that we're creating day by day over the course of our lifetime there are many of us that know what that feels like (laughs) They're like, that feel very victimized by the circumstances in which they were born. And that sucks. Can, I mean, can we acknowledge that? Like that, that it's deeply unfair. Uh, you know, even using the word fair is so simplistic. The idea of fairness is simplistic and it's tricky to talk about. So I'm just using that word in the most general sense right now. It it's unfair. Why do some people get these toolboxes of of art materials for their, their lived artwork that are relatively simple to master? And for those of you listening to this who are acrylic painters and are wanting to punch me right now through the phone, like my media is not, my medium is not simple. (laughs) Heard. (laughs) It is... The level that you can take acrylic paint, you know, and push acrylic paint, it's, it exists. Like I, I know some acrylic painters that blow my mind (laughs) and I can also hand six-year-olds acrylics and get them to a place that works within a few hours, (laughs) you know, um, it's, it's not a slam on acrylic paint. The both and can exist, right? Acrylic can be and is objectively easier to get to a place of workability sooner than watercolor. That's just, I believe that's true. I think many artists and painters would agree with me, but but also maybe not. You could be shaking your head right now and I invite you to do that because this, as always, is just my viewpoint <laughs> that, that is certainly not the end-all be-all ever, ever, ever. So, but that can be true and acrylic can be tremendously difficult 
to push in to certain levels, right? Like those, they can both exist. And guess what? They, that means they can both exist when we live as well. I have tremendous privilege, tremendous, just by the, just by the sake of who and where I was born. It doesn't take away from the fact that there have been limitations placed on my life that were significant. And I, I want to talk about one of them as a way to kind of illustrate some of these ideas in a minute. That both and can be true, right? Like that I can acknowledge the fact that I've had great struggle and great ease <laughs> relative to whoever it is I'm talking to, right? So I feel like we're kind of scraping the, the surface of some of these ideas, but I want to talk about the way that watercolor and those of us that have been handed watercolors for our lives <laughs> this for those of us that relative to others have a much more sensitive rogue <laughs> set of art tools to deal with as we create our lives i want to talk about the gifts a little bit more to these circumstances because I think that's pretty understandable for first-time watercolorists and those of us that have similar life circumstances to first-time watercolorists to be very acquainted with the limitations and it's easy to get stuck there and full disclosure I got stuck there and then never went back I I don't I don't watercolor now. It should be noted that I got stuck and I set it aside. And and if I was living in a watercolor painting, I wouldn't have had that luxury. And and this is the frustration of those of us living with a more rogue set of circumstances in our lives is that we don't get to just get a new piece of paper and a whole new life. You know, and it can create a sense of stuckness that can create, that can lead to despair. And I know that everyone has had that experience for in, in a whole different array of levels or, or a spectrum of severity, but we've, we all know what that feels like where we are, we end up in this place where we can't create our way out of it because the media that we're working with are really challenging and we're in a certain spot for so long that eventually we sort of lean into the the spiral of I guess this is just my life. Can can y'all relate to that? Of I guess this black, muddy, crappy watercolor puddle is my life. <laughs> and I just have to learn to deal with it. And Maybe I'll deal with it by numbing out. <laughs> Maybe I'll deal with it by freaking out. <laughs> the possibilities of that situation disappear. And all we see are the liabilities. And it might sound, I feel like as I'm saying this, it might sound a little bit like I'm 
preaching and I'm I I need to reiterate that I'm speaking from a place of no no I I live this all the time <laughs> that I work I work in my art and in my life constantly with this feeling of being not free of being enslaved by the media in my toolkit and desperately wishing that I could pull other media into my toolkit and and I can't like this is what I have and I have to like work with this and and that's hard it's hard this has been a little amorphous so I want to concretize it a little bit into a story <laughs> y'all y'all are familiar with with that modality in these podcast episodes excuse me for a coffee sip so i have those some of you know me more directly perhaps and know this already but this is a part of my life that is generally not known i have an incredibly incredibly I would say exceptionally clean diet um, to the point where I'm, I almost feel tentative to talk about it. And, you know, sometimes people ask because I'll be out to dinner and I'll be with a group of people and there will be almost nothing, if possibly nothing on the menu that I have any desire to eat. And so I won't eat <laughs> And that kind of behavior, you know, is red. Is, it's like a red flag for, I would say, almost everybody. Because eating and robustly eating is a huge part of our culture. It's a huge part of American culture. And to sit in a social environment and not participate in that way, it's weirdly a red flag for a lot of people. And it used to be for me too, right? Like, especially as a woman, right? Like, there's all kinds of, I don't know, weird weird energy around women not eating <laughs> in order to stay thin or to preserve this like weird cultural idea around weight. And so I think a lot of people would would worry about me like, oh, is, is Becca like have a problem with food? And the truth is, no, I actually have this really robust love of food. I worked in fine dining for a long time. And one of my very favorite things to do was to go out to a lovely meal and have like 10 courses with multiple glasses of wine paired with each thing. And it was a joy for me to do that. And, and <laughs> in tandem with some of these circumstances was these medium mediums media <laughs> that I was born with when it came to the way that my body would create with this world and from a really young age I was born in the 80s right so there was a totally different zeitgeist around this a totally different framework of reference around food in the 80s from the moment I was born, I had terrible reactions to food, but because it was the 80s, most doctors told my parents that I just was an emotional kid. I had a lot of colic as a kid, a lot of colic. And, you know, doctors know now that 
lots of colic is almost always gut related. Like that children are screaming because they are eating things that their body deeply dislikes. <laughs> and for me, it was breast milk. I was very lactose intolerant. And that lactose intolerance was hardly a thing in the 80s. And so by the time I was three and four years old, I had these vivid memories of, I mean, forgive my sort of too much information share here, but like crazy, crazy constipation where I would just be weeping because I hadn't gone in so long. And my parents would be like shoving laxatives in my face just to give me relief. You know, that type of thing shouldn't be happening to a three-year-old, you know? And this, the culture's ideas around food and, and Western medicine's ideas around food are still pretty ancient, you know, if I'm being honest. And by the time I was 12, I was having these ridiculously sharp pains that would be so significant that I would sit when they were happening and breathe through them. And I remember telling my mom one day, I think I have cancer in my stomach, you know? And she took me to the pediatrician. And I'll never forget. <laughs> she she pushed on my belly a little bit. And, and she said, does that hurt? And I said, no, because, you know, it didn't at the time. <laughs> and then she looked me in the eyes and she said, you don't have cancer in your stomach. And I don't want you to worry about it. And she was right. I didn't. I had IBS. <laughs> but IBS did not exist in 1992. Or if it did, it was in the fringes with holistic docs, who interestingly, holistic medicine is tends to be on the forefront of, of things that later Western medicine adopts, you know. And so I continued to eat cheese and processed foods and food dyes and all of the things that created havoc in my body. And I learned to submit to feeling like junk you know I I learned that feeling bad wasn't just abnormal it was just how I just assumed that I felt normal I assumed that the whole world had pains in their belly isn't that crazy but I really did I began to assume that those sharp pains were just normal digestion problems <laughs> that everyone did that everyone had um this is in some ways the feeling that I was describing of low-key low despair of, well, this is just my life now, so I guess I better get used to it, right? So, <laughs> and then one day in my 30s, I met someone who changed my life forever. She was, you know, we've, she just like came into my life briefly and then left and she was one of my first friends in Austin and she was coming here to go to the school for Asian, Asian medicine. And I was having terrible, by this point in my life, eating all of these things, right? Like, you know, I was trying to, what I had been trying to do was paint like an acrylic painter with watercolors. <laughs> and my body was reflecting that subsequent mess. <laughs> like It's a rough metaphor, but it's an apt one, right? I was trying to create in a way that I was seeing other people create. I was trying to eat in a way that I was seeing other people eat, but I had a totally different set of creative tools and circumstances to work with. And so by the time I was in my early 30s, I was 
I believe, experiencing the beginning of an autoimmune disorder. Everything hurt every day. From head to toe, I felt like I had a fever all the time. And I remember Austinites would tell me, oh, you just have cedar fever. You know, it's this thing that they talk about here. And Austin allergies are pretty bad. And so I figured, I guess I'm just one of the unlucky ones. But I started to feel, I know this sounds dramatic, but after about a, a year or two of living here, I started to feel like I was dying. It, and it's, I was starting to feel a level of physical malaise that was alarming that felt very different than I'd ever experienced before. And it was my, my body's artwork <laughs> being like, Hey, 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 <laughs> this is a big mess. Like we're, we're entering a, a phase of no return here. And I mentioned to my friend who is going to school for Asian medicine, I think I'm going to have to move. I really, I can't live here. Like I, I had allergies in Ohio, but they weren't like this. Like, I think I need to go. And she said, why don't we sit down and maybe I can help. And I remember, you know, at this point I had been going to Western doctors and we had tried everything. At one point I was on like five different medications. I was experiencing side effects from all of them and none of the benefits. <laughs> and I remember being, and it, it was akin to going to a bunch of acrylic painters for help with watercolor, right? Like that's what it was. That's what I was doing. And so I kind of scoffed in my head. I, I admittedly scoffed in my head and thought, there's no way you can help me. I've done everything. And no offense, but your flowery woo-woo stuff isn't going to be strong enough to deal with the level of shit that I'm in right now. And I think this mentality, by the way, it should be noted, is still very present in our society right now. Um, there are people on dozens of medications who, when suggested to try acupuncture or something like that, would just immediately bristle, Right. And maybe rightfully so, like they're on all of these supposed healing agents. None of them are working. Why would something as gentle as acupuncture possibly have any effectiveness? And I think she probably was getting educated on some of that reaction because she, she handled it masterfully. She said, you know what, at the bare minimum, maybe you could just like vent to me about your experience because it sounds like your doctors aren't even listening to you. And she was right. They weren't. Doctors in Western medicine, I think deeply, they go into medicine to deeply care for and help. Like those of you listening that work in medicine, you know, this is true. And the limitations of the system are significant. And so most doctors have maybe 10 minutes to like hear your situation and prescribe something and then you have to go because their schedule is packed. <laughs> I remember we went to this little juice shop at the top of my street and we had some organic juice and, <laughs> and she sat with me for two hours and asked questions that no doctor had ever asked me before. And I remember feeling at the bare minimum, like truly seen, <laughs> And then she said, this is what I think you should try. And I'm hoping you could just like give me the benefit of the doubt and do it for just seven days. And then if it doesn't work, you can stop. 
And I thought, she's like, I mean, can you do that? Like, can you do this for seven days? And I said, I think I can. And this is what she told me to do. She said, I want you to stop drinking all alcohol, anything artificial in any way, anything refined sugar, anything gluten, anything, actually all grains. So no, no rice or corn, no dairy. And I said, what am I going to (laughs) eat? And she said, as much clean protein and clean vegetables and clean fruits and beans as you want. And you can gorge on them, but you truly like, I don't want a single speck of any of that other stuff because all of those things that I just told you to eliminate can be inflammatory. And then we're going to reintroduce them one at a time. And for those of you listening to this, you might've heard of this. This has become so much more common in the last five years is the elimination diet. I was truly skeptical and I was also desperate. I was desperate. I was the watercolorist with this gigantic heap of black muddy mess. And the way that I had been painting, I've been, you know, like painting like an acrylic artist wasn't working anymore. And I couldn't, I can't set aside my mess like a watercolorist can. Like I was living in it. I, I had to deal with it. Um, or, or I didn't, I could continue to live the way that I was living, but because of this massive shitstorm happening in my life canvas, it pushed me into a creative space that I'd never been before. And I was like, okay, yeah, I, I, what do I have to lose? <laughs> you know, it's not going to hurt me. And so I went to the grocery store. I left the juice bar. I went to the grocery store. I got a bunch of food. I did the diet in perfection to her exact wishes. And by day four, every single one of my symptoms was completely and utterly gone. And it was life-changing. And it was life-changing because I was getting support, creative support from metaphorically another watercolorist, right? My friend had been deeply schooled in the ways of creating a life with the same tools that I had, the same body I had, the same circumstances I had. And when I followed her techniques my life artwork was in my hands again. It was, um, it was amazing. It was amazing. So that happened 13 years ago. And then over the last 13 years, and this has been a process, but I slowly began to learn about the foods that never, ever cause me to have a muddy painting and because foods are creative tools um one of my very favorite instagram accounts is by dr mark hyman who is the head of the functional medicine department at the cleveland clinic and functional medicine views the body as an artwork and it views the body as a system and (laughs) He always says that food is medicine. 
And not only is it medicine, but food is a, it programs your cells. It's, it creates on your cells. <laughs> and this idea deeply resonated with my experience, right? Like I would eat certain things and my body would feel in totally different ways. When I would tell this to certain people, there would be this sort of weird confusion with many of them. And, and some people definitely would know what I was talking about, but many people would be like, well, I don't have that experience with food. You know, I, and that makes sense, right? Because we're all given these different creative media to work with. Watercolor is a deeply sensitive material. It is very unforgiving. And yet when you learn to use it, you can create these outcomes that are bananas cool, right? There are other mediums that are much more forgiving and it's and maybe perhaps it's harder to push them to wild expanses. <laughs> I once heard um, one of the teachers that I have gotten so much from, Alyssa Mailhorn. She's a local mystic here in Austin and her work is profound. I'm going to link to her website in the show notes as well. She once talked about her body as a Ferrari. And I think this was a metaphor her doctor gave her, if I recall, that a Ferrari is, and excuse my language, is sensitive as shit. <laughs> You would not take a Ferrari, a Ferrari into the brush in the country of Texas. It would be terrible. It would do a terrible job. But if you are doing elite racing, this performance vehicle does magnificent things that a pickup truck could never do. <laughs> right? This is, this is a, a metaphor that can, I think, help us understand the differences between art materials, right? It's not better or worse. It's just both and. It's just different, right? A pickup truck is a wonderful transportation vehicle if you're in the country. <laughs> it doesn't do the trick if you're on a Formula One track, you know, and vice versa with a Ferrari. So... I spent the last 13 years learning to adapt to what I ate and it has been learning to treat my body like a Ferrari. I, I don't eat restaurant oil of any kind because anything but organic oil, I feel it. I'm, my, the watercolors in my palate react, they're sensitive to even the slightest thing, right? Watercolorists are super restrained in their application, and I'm very restrained in the application in my life now. And one of the things that I've heard, and I'm suspecting some of you listening to this might be thinking it too, and it's normal. I thought it so many times in the beginning of my food journey, <laughs> learning to be a watercolorist of my life, was I could never do that. People will say, like, they'll, they hear that I almost never eat refined sugar. Truly almost never. Like, once a month, maybe. <laughs> and people will say, I can never do that. And that's, I, I, I want to say, like, maybe some of you are thinking that I'm about to say that's not true. And what I want to say is, no, it is true. <laughs> and it's very valid. It, 
I would never have learned to create this way with eating if I don't believe um, unless I had been forced to. I don't believe anyone, by the way, learns to create in wildly, radically expansive ways unless they are made to. The mess in my body, the mess in my life artwork was so significant from working in the wrong ways with the wrong materials (laughs) that I was desperate to do anything differently and I did. I don't think that I ever would have the relationship I have with food any other way. And herein lies the gift of working with really challenging circumstances (laughs) is that the paradox of artistry, masterful artistry, is that often the most amazing creations come from being totally fucking trapped. The, and it's this is not how we like to think about artistry. And I think it makes sense, you know, to go back to our ancestral roots. We all come from a history of being truly enslaved in so many very real world ways, right? Like my ancestors on my, the Celtic side, the Irish side, um, like if, if I had been born then in those circumstances, the type of art that I make now could have gotten me burned. <laughs> like I, I do a podcast about channeling energy through art making, right? That like, that is somewhere deep inside of me, right? And and honestly, y'all, for a long time, that kept me from making art that way because it felt unsafe to make art that way. And culturally and collectively on the planet, we're all kind of navigating these energies right now of healing things that are very old. And one of those things is our ideas around being truly enslaved and truly not free. And because our ancestors were so truly not free in very specific ways, you know, um, lots of injustices based on color of skin and religion and place of birth. And I mean, the list goes on and on. I don't, I don't need to explain it to you because everyone listening to this knows what I mean. We have this very specific idea of what freedom is and freedom is independence. It is freedom away from, it is no limitations. It's why the holiday in America is called Independence Day. It says we are not limited by another country. We are free. And a lot of these ideas around freedom pervade our culture now for better or for worse. This isn't a, this isn't a one or the other. This is a both and. However, I think because we have really specific stories about freedom being lack of limitations, when we are limited in often profound ways in our lives or in our art making, the assumption is I can't make this. Like I can't, I can't create, I can't create the life I want. I can't create the art I want. There's too many limitations on me. 
And that's a very real story that has, has had very real implications for a very long time. And I want to give the gentle disclaimer before I move forward and talk about this a little bit more to say that if you feel that way, that's very freaking valid, very freaking valid. Um, 30 year old Becca, whose body was dying, would have punched someone in the face. This is the second time that I've used that phrase in this episode. (laughs) If they had told me that my circumstances were actually the foundation for freedom. <laughs> That's, that would have been so unhelpful and also unkind, right? But the truth was they were, both and. <laughs> the circumstances that I found myself in in my 30s were awful and really hard and really unfair and really truly limiting and paralyzing and I was in despair. That was very true and... That deep, severe limitation in my art creative toolbox, (laughs) my art creative life toolbox, ended up being the foundation for this wildly expansive, different way of eating that has given me experiences that very few people get to experience. I have a level of energy and vitality at almost 43 that many 20-year-olds don't have. And I definitely try to enjoy that without proselytizing about it because it's not it's not better or worse. It just is what it is right watercolor isn't better than acrylic it just is what it is (laughs) and I for me feel so profoundly happy because I'm using the materials I was given to create a life experience that really really works for me and I'm not trying to paint like an acrylic artist with watercolors anymore and getting this muddy, awful, miserable life experience, right? I'm not a Ferrari trying to drive like a pickup truck, you know? I'm wondering how this resonates for some of you listening because I really think that this gets at the root bed of a lot of life challenges for most of us is that we're trying to create in a way we're trying to create a life that follows the rule books, the creative rule books of others. And those others have totally different things in their art box. And when we try to make our lives in the way that they do with totally different materials, we get this messy result over and over again and we start to blame ourselves. We must not be good artists. We must not be good humans. I used to say that to my mom when I was little. I don't think I'm a good human. And I remember she would get really unsettled by that because it's a weird thing for a kid to say. (laughs) I don't, but I really felt that way. I felt like everyone around me was humaning much better. They were having a much more positive experience than I was. I felt like very simple everyday things were very difficult. 
even just focusing was terribly difficult. By the time I was in my mid-20s, I was on ADD medication. And guess what? I went 100% off that medication when I figured out that all of my attention and focus problems were coming from massive chronic gut inflammation. Of course, I felt like I was terrible at humaning. I was fully inflamed all the time. I was a puddle, a puddly watercolor mess that I couldn't fix using the tools that were being given to me by acrylic painters all around. I think it's important to kind of wrap up this episode and say that maybe it sounds, and rightfully so, maybe it sounds like I'm framing watercolorists as superior. And I've touched upon some of the both and of this, but I I think it, it bears saying again, for the sake of this story, it was probably helpful to kind of talk about watercolor versus acrylic painting in this more lateral dichotomous way but truly y'all having a pickup truck for a body having really forgiving creative tools in your life is also profoundly important right that you know (laughs) my husband eats boxes of cookies (laughs) And he, he feels it. Of course he feels it. But it he like totally functions. He totally functions, right? He notices it, but it's fine. If I do that, I'm, I'm, I feel hungover. I feel like I had a bottle of wine for like three days. It's very interesting. And having those different types of bodies and those different types of artistic living experiences in the planet is important having ferraris and pickup trucks is important having watercolorists and acrylic painters is important both and matter deeply the problem isn't one or the other and our society loves to do that right it loves to even people that have podcasts like mine they when they're pointing their finger at problems It's easy to say this is the problem and this is the solution. And that's not the case. Most of the time, it's not the case. This is the beauty of an artistic mindset is that both and are true. The problem isn't being a watercolorist or being an acrylic painter. The problem isn't eating salad or eating Doritos. (laughs) The problem is, are you using the tools that you've been given in the way they were meant to be used? Because if you're not then your life begins to feel, in my opinion, pointless. And I I really started to get to that place by my late 20s, early 30s. And moving to Austin was transformative because I moved to a place, Austin, that is full of watercolorists. (laughs) And I was like, oh, My life isn't pointless. I'm actually an excellent human. When I use my tools in this way, I manifest and actualize my life and the painting that I create day in and day out on my life is freaking gorgeous in a way that was impossible as a child, 
And when you are constantly in that space of being unable to create in your life, it it does lead to personal and systemic despair. And I, I think that if we zoom back a little bit and look at the news or look at things happening in the planet right now, we can see groups of people and societies of people grappling with this exact thing of desperately trying to make their lives using their personal art tools in the complete wrong way. Who and what power structures benefit from a situation like this, right? You know, capitalism and market economies love people to be in spaces of despair and pointlessness because people that in those spaces love to spend money. And so we've created circumstances in our society that feed these systems that totally don't work. And collectively, right now, I personally believe we are figuring this out. And the place that it starts is with you. It can feel, I I really do believe this, it can feel like when we're thinking about serving the planet and serving others, it can feel like I I need to like go to Washington, D.C. and hold up some signs and like, and, and totally, by the way, that is profound and very impactful and very helpful. But I think it's only impactful and helpful for the people whose tools are in their toolkits to do such a thing. And it can be really unhelpful for those of us who aren't wired to create in that way to feel like, oh, I'm not really doing anything. Here I am over here journaling in my little journal about inner wounding and (laughs) picking apart ancestral trauma and how is that even possibly helping the planet? Oh no, (laughs) it is. It is. The planet is changing faster than ever before right now because so many individual people are doing this work. There are people all over the place who are like, oh my gosh, this is how you watercolor? Oh my gosh, I don't have to go to a pediatrician for my child's eczema, which is us, by the way. Brayden has eczema. Um, Western doctors, amazing if he breaks his arm. I want a pediatrician (laughs) if he has strep throat, right? If he starts getting strep throat every couple of weeks and it becomes chronic, terrible. Pediatricians are terrible at that. Oh, I don't have to just keep going to them. I can go to this other, you know, homeopath or a functional pediatrician, you know, um, and maybe I don't have the privilege to do that. Maybe I don't. And maybe there's other ways that I can handle a situation like that. But if, but there are these new tools that are constantly emerging And we're living through a space and time where people are waking up to an alignment between what they have in their artistic life toolkit and what types of techniques they've been working on when they create their lives. I want to wrap up with this story um, because the art paradox is 
really present, I think, in a lot of ways. And I feel like this is an excellent sort of final story to tell in regards to the paradox of how limitations can be the foundation for true healing, right? When we get, when there's so much darkness and mess, <laughs> that's that's the foundation for expansion around learning these new things, around exploring our toolbox deeply, right? Um, when we're born with certain things, we just assume that everyone has them. We become blind to them, just like I became blind to having stabbing pains in my belly. And it wasn't until things got really difficult on my canvas, on my watercolor paper, <laughs> that I was forced into a totally different creative relationship with my life. The paradox of, of artistry and freedom also exists really, really profoundly with children. And the first time I was introduced to the paradox of art making was in my first year teaching in Stowe, Ohio, which, you know, I wasn't even intending. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll share like a really personal tidbit on here. And I'm like, well, maybe that wasn't a great idea, but it's been a very long time since I was there. So it doesn't, I think, matter anymore. I used to teach in a small suburb um, in Ohio. And um, my mentor was uh, a woman who just recently actually retired. Her, her name is Andrea and she and I had the most lovely conversation that is going to be posted to Secret Sauce very soon. And she shaped forever how I view artistry and education in these just perfectly gorgeous ways. Like she, she is a true mentor in every aspect of the word. And I remember about it six months into my first year of teaching, I was really struggling because I had read this article early on that first year from an educator who was really, really espousing the benefits of massive, wild amounts of freedom with kids. Don't restrict them give them paper and materials and let them do their thing. And the article was written very beautifully. I remember thinking, yes, like, you know, generations of, of children have been constricted and told, like, you must paint a, a house with the grass and the perfect, like, sun in the corner. And, you know, I don't want to be like that. Like, let's get rid of all limitations and let children create purely from their soul, Right. I'm 25 years old. This is, makes perfect sense to me. And then it didn't work at all. The first six months, I was getting these incredibly messy, incoherent pieces. And not that there's anything wrong with messy or incoherent, but the kids were not having fun and they weren't enjoying the process and they weren't proud of their pieces. Like None of it felt good. And I was confused and I felt like I was failing and I thought, oh, there must be something like in my way of implementing this that it was wrong. And I went to Andrea and I said, hey, like I read this article and I'm trying this thing and it's just really not working. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, I know, like, I know there's a lot of people in art education that believe this. It just hasn't been true for me. She said, kids are wildly creative when you restrict them. She's like, because then they feel safe. 
restrictions make people feel safe. And I was like, huh. And she said, now we're not trying to like restrict them to the point of paralysis because then that's also awful. (laughs) She said, but you know, like I had, and she would do this thing where she would put this list, like every time she would introduce a new unit, she would put this list up in the front of the room that would stay up the entire duration of the unit. And it would be like, make sure your art has this, make sure your art uses balance, make sure you fill the space, make sure. And it, they were limitations and the kids then could make, they could wiggle and play with any of the areas outside of that, but those things would be static and, and create comfort and safety in their creative practice. And weirdly y'all, that's how <laughs> that's how some of the despair that I was beginning to feel in my early 30s around food and being sick also functioned because it was this massive limitation and I was like okay this is here this thing is true and now I can create around it and I have to say it, it didn't start off being liberating at all, not, not even close. I remember the first time that I realized I needed to truly stop eating dairy was when I was 33 and I went out with a friend to an Italian restaurant and I had all this burrata and mozzarella and I came home and I wept for like an hour to Jason and he looked at me square in the eye and he said, did you eat cheese tonight? And I said, what? And he goes, you only get like this when you've eaten cheese. And then it was when I was like, oh. (laughs) And then I went through another five or six years of mourning the fact that I truly could not eat that food without feeling absolutely terrible, without having the artwork of my life turn into a mess. And once I got through that process and accepted the limitation... I was able to start creatively eating in a way that would never have been possible prior. That that profound limitation did in fact lead to a creativity that was sublime. I experienced a joy of food that I never had before. Never. Um, I've, I've had Doritos recently. They taste disgusting. <laughs> I, you know, like, and once again, we're in the both and territory here, but like, what I want to say is that we can, if we're ready and when we're ready, embrace this idea that some of the grossest and most difficult hindrances and limitations in our lives can be this fertile soil for something magnanimous later. And it, it can create, for me at least, it has created this sense of safety when I'm drowning. The, the past year and a half learning to be a mom has been some of the hardest of my life. And the despair and the spiraling has become so much less because I know that this is fertile soil. These, these limitations, 
that are all over. Y'all, being a new parent is profoundly limiting. And it has created a lot of fear and a lot of senses of being trapped. But underneath all of that is this little seed in my mind that that knows no these massive limitations on my freedom right now are the art paradox in action that my creative capacity is about to explode i was before brayden came into my life i had nothing but time and i was throwing all of my time and energy into my art business and from the outside looking in, it was amazing. You know, I that fi- in 2019, the year before COVID, was the height of my business. You know, I, I was working in a... I helped create this beautiful women-run art studio in East Austin. We were having these amazing partnered community events with really cool food partners. I was doing a ton of corporate design work, big, gigantic murals, uh, I got to go on the news multiple times. I got to, I had a write up in Austin Women Magazine, like all of these things. It was crazy cool. And my internal experience was that I was drowning. <laughs> and I remember at the time thinking, there's no way I can have a child. I can't get my shit together with all of this time. How will I possibly ever find my groove in art business if I have a kid? And then one of the biggest limitations of all time happened in 2020, and that was COVID. And suddenly, all kinds of freedom was taken away. And for many, many, many of us, not not all of us, (laughs) but I would venture to say most of us in certain capacities were woken up by that limitation. I don't mean to suggest even remotely that COVID was positive or should be viewed as positive. (laughs) I don't mean to remotely suggest that it should have been an enjoyable time. And, And it may have been positive, it may have been enjoyable, but I don't mean to suggest that it should be viewed that way at all. What I do know is true, however, is that it profoundly shifted the way that society had been trying to paint like an acrylic painter with watercolor tools. One of the ways this became really noticeable to Jason and I was that during COVID, this documentary came out on Netflix. I I bet some of you have watched it on the Britney Spears movement, the Save Britney movement. And the content of that documentary is fascinating, not not relevant to this podcast episode, but if you're even remotely interested in Britney Spears or any of the zeitgeist of the early 2000s, you should check it out. But one of the things that Jason and I both noticed when we were watching this documentary is they took a bunch of clips of media, news media, television media, um, from the early 2000s when Britney was really gaining steam as an artist. And it was cringe worthy like Jay Leno right who is this very loved television personality making disgusting jokes about her body and sexuality and she's like 18 years old right things that would absolutely never happen and and some of you might be thinking 
No, that that happens now. It does. It absolutely still happens now. But if you watch the documentary, you'll see what I mean. The way that these media clips were showing things from 20 years ago, you're like, oh no, that level of grossness is permanently gone. If any television personality would say some of the jokes that Leno was saying in 2000, the backlash would be just far too significant. We COVID has changed the culture permanently in exactly the way that the art paradox does, right? Like severe limitations force severe creativity, right? The pandemic felt like despair. It was like, oh my God, I have this puddle of shit. How could I possibly create a life in this? How many parents listening to this right now know what I'm talking about? Who were suddenly like working from home 40, 50 hours a week and their children are trying to go to school next to them and there's chaos in the house and everybody's stressed and depressed. And that was, a, and that was like a, a soup for despair. Or how many of us worked in first responder capacities and worked in grocery stores and had to show up during this terrifying time. It didn't feel artistic at all. It just felt scary. And later, it has profoundly shifted the entire planet permanently in really creative, positive ways. And once again, both and are true. It was awful and it was beautiful. It was beautiful and it was awful. And saying that it was awful doesn't take away from how beautiful it was. Saying it was beautiful doesn't take away from how awful it was. They coexist, right? And this realization is not just changing the planet. It's changing us. And I have learned... And I think this is like sort of the final thing I want to offer you or invite for you to consider after listening today is this isn't about you going to your studio table or out into your life with your partner or your job or your kids or whatever and being like, oh, where's the bad shit and how can I turn that into a positive creative force? (laughs) First of all, I... I, I don't think that's how it works, but also it it's putting a lot of gross pressure on you. <laughs> um, rather, I want to invite you to consider that this is a natural process that happens without you doing anything. Rather, the process unfolds gracefully when you just remember it. Like I, I haven't tried to turn the crap in my life into creative good. I just know that it will eventually and it gives me a lot of comfort. And when I look back at the sequence of events in my life, if I'm being really honest with myself, that's how life progresses, right? That all of the really dark, messy parts, the severe limitations that we struggle under deeply often become the fertile soil for something amazing later. And 
Our job isn't necessarily to then take those lessons and perpetuate them consciously. I don't believe they're meant to be consciously perpetuated. I believe that that concept is meant to just be cherished and held close to our heart to comfort us so that we don't fall into despair. Because despair and victimization are the opposite of creativity. This is from the famous Joe Dispenza. He actually said this in a podcast interview. And I think I've mentioned it before because it's so brilliant. He says the opposite of creativity isn't consumption. We're so used to thinking of being a consumer as the opposite of being a creator. The opposite of being a creator is being a victim. Once you're in despair and victimization, making stuff is frozen and and paralyzed. And so our job isn't necessarily to try to find these beautiful grains of truth in the in the gross limitations that we are dealing with the job is just to hold faith that this thing is going to be the soil for something that is really profoundly helpful later and maybe maybe you will not feel that way many times i have to tell you that in the past year and a half There were so many times where I was like, there is no good reason for this crap. And I will stubbornly defend that statement till the end of time. I would tell that to to my husband and he would look me straight in the eye and go, yeah, I know. He wouldn't go into some long diatribe about how this, this crap could suddenly become creative, fertile soil for later, right? Like, no, it was awful and hard and there was nothing good about it. That is true and should it become the fertile soil for something later that also can be true but the truth of all of this stuff still remains and that is that the most profound limitations paradoxically lead to some of the most profound creations and we never profoundly create unless forced to I don't believe, I don't believe it. I, I really, I, and, maybe, and I'm, this will be up for revision in the future. But as it stands right now, y'all, being really forced through the birth canal <laughs> of something is, is when new life happens. Like it, it's always really painful. I love y'all. Take what resonates with you and leave all of the rest. Any part of this episode that didn't stick, just dump it because it doesn't matter. Um, And until next time, peace.